I've got one that's about 15 years old, completely fell apart. I had to have it spiral bound, but I thought I'd start fresh with you. And so I've been redoing it this time and uh, Bill and I are going through it and we're having a great time. And it's just, it's like blowing my mind all over again. So I'm just really, I'm getting a lot out of it. So our question will always be, have you done the purple bick? And, and just get used to that. And and uh, we're going to get to the point where that's just going to become a part of our culture. Uh, we, you know, we're going to have, we've got our inv invisible sign over here, no perfect people allowed. We may have to add one that says, have you done the purple book? So eventually we'll, we'll get that done. So let's go ahead and um, pray and then let's hit the ground running. We've got a lot of tur turf. Yes, ma'am. Well, that's sort of a given. Yeah, we know there was one, so so I don't want to make it too long. That's too many letters. <laughs> it starts to get cluttered. Uh, but anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being together. We're here tonight as sons and daughters, not only of the Most High God, the King of Kings, but also of our Father, our Abba Father. Thank you that you're a good father to us. That's not just a clever song that's on the radio. Lord, you truly are good. And as one of our core values is your goodness, that no matter what is going on in the world around us or what's going on in our own world, in our own sphere of influence, in our own orbit, our own relationships, relational orbit, we still declare your goodness no matter what. And so, Lord, as we immerse ourselves into this study tonight and, and in the following weeks, Lord, I'm asking you, would you take the scriptures that many of us have probably read before and have navigated before to some degree, and would you breathe new life and peel back yet another layer of understanding, another layer of comprehension, another layer of revelation, so that as we study, as we read, that your Holy Spirit the parakletos, the one called alongside to help, the one that the book of John calls the spirit of truth who leads us and guides us into all truth, that you would come alongside of us and open our eyes that we may see, our ears that we may hear, and our hearts that we may know the truth that makes us free. And so, Lord, right now, we submit our hearts to you, our minds to you. I do the same as a teacher. Uh, Lord, I, I love getting to do this because you always open my eyes fresh. I get things hot off the press up here. So I, I'm, I'm anticipating uh, getting something new and fresh tonight as we, as we jump into your scripture, into the words of life. So thank you for it. Thank you for each one who's come out. And even those who will be watching this uh, via uh, Facebook Live, Lord, that they would be blessed and encouraged in it. And we honor you in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. So we're going to go ahead and hit the ground running. Have you done the purple book? The next slide you're going to see there, what? Incoming? I'm sorry. I'm sorry, do what? You, oh, you had your baby this week. Oh, well, bravo and way to go and wow. Congratulations. That's amazing. Wow. Sorry, Lori, I couldn't read sign language. I was having a hard time following. What is this? <laughs> so, all right. So, we're going to be talking about this, and, and Russ is helping us out with slides tonight. The Harvest Visions, one thing we want to keep in mind, one of the things that we're doing is that 
the reason why we're moving from a satellite campus that has been doing video to now a live campus, in fact, in uh, at the end of May, we'll, we'll have been live one year. Uh, so we'll have our one-year anniversary of preaching live and being a live church. And so one of the things that's that folds into that is this harvest vision, this idea that we believe that God wants to do something amazing. We lean into that. We pray for it. We have faith for it. We expect God to move. And so the Harvest Vision is part of that. Uh, Max uh, Lucado, our senior pastor, felt like the Lord spoke to him about two years ago, give or take, that, that there was a harvest coming. Now, when I hear something like that, being a West Texas boy, I know what that means. That means you got to get ready. And so, so everything we're doing now is really in preparation for a harvest that we believe that the word of the Lord is, is coming. And uh, I look around our community, and I say to myself, I think God is setting up something amazing. Uh, in fact, on Easter Sunday, already, we have eight baptisms scheduled. Isn't that exciting? So in the middle, so yeah, amen. So in the middle service, we'll baptize eight. That's what we know so far. I think there'll be more. And so, but I tell you what, if we'll all go win a few people to Jesus, we'll have 30 or 40, right, by Easter? Why not? So we're called to be his witnesses. So the scripture that we use for the Harvest Vision is this, but you shall receive, or you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Remember, that's our locale. All Judea, that's the broader area. Samaria, that's the other part of town that we're not supposed to go in, right? That's who God's sending us to. And remember, it blew their minds when he, when, when he said, oh, you're going to go to those dirty Gentiles over in Samaria. And then to the end of the earth. So basically, God, the world, and other things. Everywhere, everybody, everywhere is who we're supposed to be going after. So that's our harvest vision. So I want to share a couple of things. And, and Russ, let's move through that next slide. I don't want to spend time on it. We're, last week we did the intro to the Purple Book. Uh, you know what? Give me a second. This is what I love about technology. So um, I'm actually looking at the wrong thing. So here it is. Got it. Yay. Downloading. Bar moving. Good. But now we're good. Okay. So um, next slide. Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18. We've also called this the apostolic mandate. The word apostle means to be sent or sent one. And so the apostolic mandate, a mandate is an order or a commission. It's just another way to say the Great Commission. The apostolic mandate is that we are mandated to go. And look what the scripture says. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority. How much authority? You know what that means in Greek and koine, the original language? There you go. We got scholars in the room. So all authority, all the authority in heaven and on earth. If Jesus has all of the authority, it's been conferred upon him. How much does the devil have? There we go. But why do we act like he does? <laughs> Hello. Okay. Yeah. Good answers right there. So it says, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And, and I love this. Therefore, go. There's the apostolic piece to this. We're to go. Go and make disciples of all nations. Switzerland included, right? All nations. All nations. We have a friend who's a, um, a missionary in France, dear friend of ours. We have a friend that's a missionary in Scotland. We have new friends now that are missionaries in Lisbon in Northern Ireland. And they are making disciples of all nations, which actually this reads, if you break it down in the, in the original language, it actually says, go and disciple the nations. 
We're not just supposed to make disciples in a nation. We're supposed to disciple nations. And that is why in our last study of the book of Acts, Paul was so adamant about going to Rome. Because he knew he, if he could influence the influencers, lead the leaders, impact the impactors, he could reach the world. That was Paul's vision because he understood that the apostolic mandate was to go and disciple nations, not just go and disciple a handful of people in a nation. Does that make sense? So if we're called to disciple nations, what do you think that says about Fredericksburg? We're called to disciple Fredericksburg. Amen? And don't think it can't happen. Because we've been in a community where it happened. We've seen God move at this level. So I know it can, and I'm fully expecting. It's like eating a Pringles, right? You eat one, you just got to have the rest. You can't stop. And so once you've tasted that, you got to have more. And that's where we're going. So therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything. How many things? Everything. All things I have commanded you, and surely... I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that is our mandate. Acts 1.8 is also a driver, and I just read it, but you shall receive or will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. We already know he's in you, but we also get a commission from him, an empowerment by him when he comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. And what does a witness do? Thank you very much. That's what a witness does. They answer the questions that are being asked, which means we have to live a life that's compelling enough that causes people to ask questions. They need to see something that's different in us that compels them to say, what is it that makes you tick? Why is everyday Friday for you? Why are you happy all the time? Why do you whistle while you work? I mean, people should be looking at us and saying there's something different. Not weird, just different. Amen? In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, it's on the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. It's the first place that we see that God speaks God who speaks the world into existence. But he shows up in a place that is, I love what it says here, formless and empty. Another translation says it was void, like a vacuum. And God shows up and speaks, and now light happens. But is that not what he does to us? It's the same. It's a foreshadowing of how he's going to transform our lives from darkness to what? To light. So it was a foreshadowing of what was to come. It's God's M.O., so to speak. It's his modus operandi. This is how he works. He shows up, he speaks, and life happens, right? And the Bible even tells us that the God who calls those things that be not as though they are, that's Romans chapter 4, and he speaks into things and it comes to life. Jesus stilled the storm with words. He didn't think about it. He said, peace be still. He rebuked the storm and it, it went calm. The word rebuke means to arrest or stop. So he spoke to it and he arrested it with his words. Uh, Jesus called forth Lazarus, not by thinking about it or wishing it. He actually called him forth. So the, the power of words, the power of words to shift atmospheres. And this is what we see here. Now the earth formless, empty, darkness is over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Everything we see around us had a beginning. Everything. 
there's actually a doctrine of first things where you see patterns that when you see a first thing in the scripture, it's very important because you'll see a first thing and then you'll see a foreshadowing of things to come. So him speaking into this was a first thing. In fact, when the enemy shows up in the form of a servant, serpent to Adam and Eve, we see a first thing. We see the enemy's M.O. And we're going to read that tonight and look at that. So God declared each phase of creation good. I love that. He declares it good. Why? Because he created it. And guess what he says about you? Bad. Bad. You're a bad. No. He says over you, you're good. On your worst day, he still sees you and says, they're good. They're my creation. In fact, I formed them in my own image, the Imago Dei in Latin, my, the image of God. And it doesn't matter what the mirror tells you about your image, okay? That's just self-image, body image, culture image. He says you're good. Now look what it says here. He declared each phase of creation good until he created the first man, Adam. And then he said that was not good for him to be alone. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. I say the same thing. So God created Eve, glory, the first woman, and gave the original couple everything to enjoy except to eat the fruit of one tree. You've got access to everything I've created. It's all yours. It's a gift. Enjoy. Have an amazing life. In fact, be fruitful. Multiply. God gives them everything except one thing. And what does that create? The desire for that one thing. Does that not happen with our kids? Now, before we're too hard on our kids, does it, <laughs> it happens to us. Thank you, Melissa. I was going there. Thank you for going there for me. Y'all get throw her under the bus. So, it does the same thing in us. It triggers this, wait, is God somehow withholding from me? Is God holding out on me? So look what happens here. So he gave them everything to enjoy except that one thing, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look what happens. The fatal decision that follows and its tragic results affected us. It affected our world. We are reeling still under this curse. We live in a fallen world. That doesn't mean that people aren't good. Doesn't mean that because God said you're good. But there's also, there's a brokenness that we labor under in our time, in our world. And people say, why, why does God... Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, it's not that God's simply allowing them. It's that God set something into motion, and man then disrupted what God created. And now man has set things into motion. Man is reaping the consequences of actions. And so I never was the one of, oh, God, how could you do this to me? And let me tell you, Annette and I have had enough stuff happen in our lives that if we wanted to be that way and we wanted to be entitled, we could run around with our thumb in our mouth or laying in a fetal position all day long crying because we didn't get what we wanted or get what we thought we deserved. Instead, it's like, God, you must know what you're doing. Because you're 30,000 feet in the helicopter. I'm down here in the Mario Kart, the go-kart. And you must know what you're doing. And guess what? There's a little bug flying around there, so don't freak out. It's a big bug. Okay, it's a big bug flying around. So, uh, so 
all that to say is that if we're not careful, we'll lean into that entitlement. We begin to say, oh, God, why did you allow that to happen? And I, I tell you, I, anytime I say, why did that happen? I say, it didn't happen to me. It happened for you. God has allowed me and Annette and, and all of us to experience things because sooner or later, we're going to be in somebody's orbit who needs help. And they need to know how to navigate the complexities of life with a faith worldview, a biblical worldview. So everything that's ever come our way, we just say, you know what? This is experience that God's allowing us. He's training us in righteousness. So this is boot camp. Welcome to boot camp. And there are times I have to remind myself of that when I'm tempted to go into self-pity and despair. So this humanity would have passed down, and humanity did pass down this fatal flaw, this inner corruption from generation to generation. You've heard and we've read in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, about generational iniquity. Generational, you hear somebody maybe call, that's a generational curse. But you do see, you see patterns of besetting sins in families. You can see that in psychology and therapy. I come from a therapeutic background, and we saw it there, but from a theological perspective, we see that as well. We see it's the same thing. Is it flesh or if it's spirit? And the answer is yes. It's both. Both and. Because they're, they're both impacted by the fall. And so we see these generation from generation. Now here's the thing. If you look in your family line and you're saying this, well, my, my granddad was a deadbeat. My dad's a deadbeat. That means I'm going to be a deadbeat. Let me tell you something. Jesus come and break, comes and breaks the chain. He's a chain breaker. He's a cycle. Somebody should say amen right there. He is a cycle breaker. He breaks it. But we have to cooperate and collaborate, co-labor with him. And when we do that, we can actually break the cycle and the pattern. We don't have to be a victim of what happened two, three generations up. In fact, I did a little digging years ago little genealogy stuff. I got curious about my background because all I knew is I came from a long line of rednecks and honky-tonk heroes. So I didn't have any like valuable, you know, heritage like some of my friends did. You know, they've got, you know, famous aunts and uncles and royalty. And I'm like, gosh, all my guys just, man, they just hung out in honky-tonks and did rodeos and raced motorcycles. So I didn't have all that beautiful heritage. So I began to do some digging because maybe, just maybe, there's more to the story. Guess what? There was. And I found out that I came from a long line in, the, in America, a long line of Pruitts that were preachers, generations of preachers that were circuit riders. And I thought, oh, okay, that made me feel pretty good about things because it skipped a couple of generations before me, I'm just saying. And so I would not have known that unless I had dug in. So now, as one who's called to preach and teach and lead churches and whatnot, now I have to say, gosh, I'm actually stepping into my destiny. I'm stepping into my heritage. I'm fulfilling what my family started. I'm actually get to carry on that tradition. Isn't that great? So that's just knowing your family line and knowing. But I refuse to be, fall prey to my dad or my granddad, and the list goes on. I refuse to fall prey to their stuff. I refuse to. The power of evil and darkness would have prevailed except God had a plan. Is it plan A? Is it plan B? Is it plan C? I don't care. All I know is that God had a plan when we blew it, when we messed it up. He intervened. His plan of salvation, of deliverance from evil's power, began to unfold in that very Garden of Eden. And that really is the primary story of the Scripture. 
So here we go. Lesson one, if you have your book, go ahead and look there, and we're, we're not going to go too deep with that because I want you to answer the questions for yourself, but we're going to cover a few things. We're going to kind of, this is going to be like the sports center version. We're going to cover some highlights. So lesson one, the original story. In the beginning, creation was described by God as it was good five times. It was good. It was good. And it was good. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Remember I talked about on Sunday that God's a God of relationship and fellowship because he said, let us make man in our own image. Who is us and who is our? So God up there with the heavenly host, which we don't know all about that. But by the way, the Old Testament actually has some very interesting passages that talk about a heavenly council. There's actually more than we think going on, but we don't talk about that much. We don't dig deep, but I've actually been doing some study in that, but I'm not ready to release all that yet. So but I'm just telling you, there is more than we think going on out there. It, it, it wasn't the world. Everything wasn't void and without form before we got here. We're not the center of it, right? There were things going on long before we got here. And look what it says. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth. He had just created all this. He's saying, I'm going to give them dominion over that and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So now we, we have Adam and Eve in the picture. Thank you, Lord. Now, Genesis 28, 128, God blessed them. God pronounced a blessing upon them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. God is setting them up for success. He's saying, I'm giving you everything you need. I am providing for you. Remember we talked about first things? He's setting a precedent here for provision. And the God who provided then still provides today. The God who took care then takes care today. Do you agree with that and believe that? He loves us. Yeah, absolutely. He's going to take care of us. So it says this, they will be yours for food. And then Genesis 1.30 says, And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. God, again, giving his whole, setting up the, the food cycle, the food chain, and, and it was so. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and, he, and it was very good. So he ends the goods with a very good. And there was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. God is setting this up. So go to number four, lesson one. Look at the question. How did Adam and Eve respond to God's command? Because you would assume that since he set this up, his MO is now provision. I'm here to take care of you. I'm here to fellowship with you. I created you for relationship and fellowship. So you would think that Adam and Eve would be so grateful they would just have be walking in courageous gratitude. Thank you so much. We'll do anything except touch that one tree that you talked about. Look what happens. Genesis 3, 6, and 7. When the woman saw that the fruit of that tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, what tree are we talking about? Okay. It wasn't necessarily an apple tree. It was a tree. And it was the one that he said, don't touch. 
You've got everything. You got the run of the whole place. We don't know how big the Garden of Eden was. But I'm assuming God's pretty go big or go home, right? I think it was had to be pretty amazing. But for some reason, they found that one tree. And they were attracted to it. But then there was also introduced into the storyline is the protagonist, the enemy, in, in the form of a serpent here. And we'll look at that in just a minute. So she took some and ate it, which was the very thing she was not supposed to do, correct? So we, we see the first disobedience. And then look what happens. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he resisted and was the man of the house. <laughs> Hello. No, he had, we learned later, there's a guy named Ahab who was married to Jezebel. He had an Ahab spirit on him. He just asked, acquiesced. He just takes a step back and says, oh, yeah, that looks great, baby. Let me have a bite of that. So together, they actually disobey. And this idea of pinning it on women, be careful, right? Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. Well, that sounds like a good thing, right? And they realized, they now comprehended something that they didn't know before. They were naked. See, before then, there was no point of reference for that. There was no sin introduced. There was nothing shameful. There was nothing that had to do with guilt or condemnation. And all of a sudden, they realized they're naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So what is the first thing they did? They hid. They hid and they began to cover. And we've been doing it ever since. And remember the, remember the law of first things. We're seeing first things here. We're seeing precedent being set for how humankind is going to respond to God and respond to the world around them. And we see it all played out right here in Genesis. Human nature, cultures may be different. There may be cultural nuances between here and Switzerland. There may be cultural nuances between here and France or Guatemala or Asia or the South Pacific. They're cultural nuances, but at the core of who mankind is, there is no difference. These core inner things that drive us, drive all of us. And so we see here, think about what God attempted to protect them from. God told them not to do that because he was trying to protect them. And so he said, you've got it all except that. And what he was protecting them from was the knowledge of evil. Not the knowledge of good. They thought everything was good. They had the garden. They had the run of the place. Provision. Had God taken care of them. They had fellowship with him. Remember, we talked about the difference between relationship and fellowship. Relationship is that thing that we don't have to worry about. Once we step over the line to go in with Jesus, we have a relationship with him. And, and John chapter 10 says we're secure. We're in his hands. He's got us. And, and who's going to pry you out of God's hand? But fellowship is another element that's different. Fellowship is that union you have with him, that, that love, that phileo that you have with, with another person, that affection. That gets damaged when we sin. We lose fellowship. We lose that sense of it is well with my soul, with my Lord. And so even though you can sin and get away with it, and the sky's not going to fall on you, and you're not going to get struck by lightning, and God's not setting up a car wreck for you because you keep doing stuff. But what will happen is that that sense of well-being, that sense of 
peace, that shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken in my heart, it goes away, it evaporates. And now, though your relationship will stay intact because he's got you, but your fellowship will be broken. And you know what? That's misery. That is miserable. That's a miserable place to live. To say, yeah, I know I'm going to heaven. I gave my life to Jesus 30 years ago. Uh, but boy, I don't feel like, like I, I can't read the Bible. I can't pray. I certainly can't worship. You know? I mean, it's, it's, things are broken. Fellowship is broken. And what God is after from you is not just the relationship. He's after fellowship. He wants to, in the book of Revelation, says, open the door when I'm knocking. I just want to come in and sup with you. I just want to come in and spend time with you. I just want to get close to you. I want to fellowship with you. Does that make sense? Some of us that are married get this. We can have a relationship, and, and, and I may pull a big piece of stupid, and that's not going to leave me. But I'm telling you, our fellowship can certainly be broken. And that comes in the form of cold shoulders and slam cabinets. And I don't know about your house, but I mean, I'm just saying, that doesn't happen in mine either. But I'm just saying, if it were to happen, she's out of the room. Whew, that was good timing. Glad you're back, baby. So um, <laughs> what loving parents today do not do all that they can to shield their children from dangerous material on television, social media, anywhere else. Because God was trying to protect because we do too, but yet they didn't heed. And look what happens. In Genesis 3, we're introduced to the enemy. This is really critical because in this case, he appears in the form of a serpent. And so Genesis 3, 1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, Oh man, can you just hear the disdain in that question? Can you hear the contempt in that? Did God really say? You ever had somebody, one of your friends go, did, did our teacher really mean we couldn't get up and run around when she left the room? Did our teacher really mean we couldn't cheat on each other's tests? We couldn't look at each, we couldn't share answers while she walks out of the room? Did she really say that? Did mom really say? Did dad really say? Did that police officer really say? <laughs> did that question has belabored mankind ever since? And it's questioning authority. It's questioning those whom God puts over you, who care for you, and we begin to doubt motive. And this was introduced. Remember the law of first things. This was introduced very early. The enemy comes in, the protagonist shows up, and he introduces this question in an atmosphere where that question would have never been asked without it coming from the outside. And so we see this introduced. So did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You can just tell, he's like a car salesman. He's just working this deal, right? He's just like, you know, you know, really? I mean, I know Dave Ramsey says you shouldn't go in debt, but did he really say you shouldn't get a loan? Yeah. Sorry, I, I used to work for Dave, so I just, that's why I, uh, he's my point of reference. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Like any tree? Like... The woman said to serve, no, we can eat from the trees in the garden. She's agreeing with him. And what, again, like a good salesman, he, she, he's creating an agreement. He's creating a bond in the conversation. And she goes, no, 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 no. He, he didn't say that. He said, we may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say, 
you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So she's just saying, no, this is what he told us. And this crafty serpent, verse 4, you will not surely die. He's like, surely God wouldn't kill you for touching a tree. Come on, it's just a tree. Hello. You hear this? Man, this happens every Friday, Saturday night. Kids are riding around in a car. It's not that big a deal. Come on, take a hit. Come on, pass me a brew. Come on. You know I really love you, baby. I mean, stuff happens all the time. Now, it happens on that level, but it happens on our level, too. It happens at work. Like, yeah, I know it's not really legal, but if we cut this corner here, we can save money on this project. And, you know, everybody does it. It's not that big a deal because it's not going to hurt anybody. And what people don't know is not going to hurt them. You hear that reasoning, and guess where it started? In the garden. First conversation with the enemy was filled with manipulation and control. Twisting things, perverting things. You will not, surely God won't kill you, is what he's saying. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, he's saying now he's questioning God's motive. You need to question God. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. He mixes just enough truth into this, but yet massages it with lies. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, I'm sorry, John chapter 8, it says that the devil was a murderer from the beginning, a liar, and the father of it. He's the father of lies. That's his nature. says it was his very nature to lie. And so we see that from the very beginning. He's twisting things. He takes truth and then he inserts just enough lie, untruth into it to uh, contaminate it, so to speak. And that's what's happening here. Adam and Eve ate the fruit. It was forbidden, but they ate it. In essence, they were saying, God, we don't need you or your rules. Because they, lined, they aligned themselves and made an agreement with the enemy. I'm telling you, there's power in agreement. In the New Testament, we read that where two on earth agree is touching anything. It got, it's actually a covenant agreement that happens that has a power in it. And the enemy loves to get into agreement with us on things. On lies. On lies about God's goodness. God's motive. God's love for us, when we begin to question, did God really say? Did he really mean? Surely you won't die. Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized, that means they comprehended, they understood they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Verse 9, but the Lord called to the man, where are you? Interesting enough that God's first move is to pursue that which was lost. Remember Jesus telling the story of the 99 and the shepherd and the one that's lost, he'll leave the 99 to go find the one. That's not just pastors chasing down rogue church members. I've had people put that on me before. I'm like, no, that's all of us saying it's, this is the heart of God to go after people and love people. The Lord called, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. This is Adam saying, I heard you in the garden. And look what is his first response. He's never said anything like this to God before. He now says this, I was afraid. So now we see fear is introduced 
into the whole milieu of this thing. Fear is introduced, control is introduced, manipulation and lies are introduced, deception has been introduced. Questioning God is being introduced, and in, in very real terms, questioning authority in general. It's really chick and cool to question authority now. In fact, it's great. Isn't it cool to bash authority on social media? Be careful if you're one of those on social media ranting. Because I'm telling you, God takes this stuff very seriously. He even says that our role in regard to our leaders and those that are leading our country is to pray for them. Can you imagine if Christians prayed as much as they ranted on social media about politicians? Can you imagine the shift that would happen in the atmosphere over Washington or Austin? Yeah, I'm meddling now. I just stepped in it, didn't I? But here's the deal, guys. Are, are we for real or not? I mean, is Jesus real or not? Is the Bible real or not? And if it is, then we need to lean into what it says and let our lives operate according to the Scripture, not according to what culture says. We are to be counterculture, not anti-culture. Don't miss me. He says, be in the world, not of it. So we are, but, but we're counterculture. We're not rebellious. We're revolutionary in nature. Does that make sense? It, it, so so I, I mean to get off on that, but it's important. Where are you? He, God pursues. The first thing God does is go after him. He says, I was afraid because I was naked. And look what he says, and I hid. And we've been hiding from God ever since. Running from God running from God. You know what I learned as a young follower of Jesus? I learned that when I sinned, that I was going to run one way or the other. I might as well run to him and learn to be quick to repent. Quick to repent. Steve? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Adam, where are you? Yeah. And Adam, well, and look how bold and brave Adam is in his response. This is amazing. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Do you think God didn't know? <laughs> Hello. But he's, he's, he's trying to help. He's trying to roll this out. And look what happens. Verse 12. The man said, the woman you put here with me. So now we see blame being introduced into the storyline. See what's happening here in just a few short verses. Everything goes off the rails. The fall. Sin has now contaminated every conversation. Now we're doubting God. Now we're not sure if he's good. Even though he created us, and even though he breathed life into us, and even though he set us up with provision, the garden and said, you've got the run of the place, just leave that one thing alone, and you're great. And we go to the one thing. The one thing. And we've been doing it ever since. The man said, the woman, that woman you put here with me. Wow. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and then I ate it. He probably whispered that. I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The blame game. I mean, we're pointing fingers at everybody, are we not? No one is owning. How different would the story have been if Adam said, you are absolutely right? 
you're right. David, who was a, did David blow it or what? We hold him up as a hero, but that guy, he was a mess. He was a train wreck. I mean, he'd just get mad and kill people. He just, he was, he was a mess. And yet, the scripture says, God counted him as a man after his own heart. Why? Because David was quick to repent. You read the Psalms throughout the Psalms. He always starts off with a complaint, and then he turns, and then he's in repentance, and then he's in praise. You see this pattern throughout all the, all the Psalms that David wrote follow this pattern. And that's why he was considered a man after God's heart, own heart. God doesn't say he behaved greatly. That's why I loved and valued him. It was he was quick to repent. He was quick to own his stuff. And we also know David was quick to take your head off if you didn't own your stuff, right? I mean, David was a, a warrior poet. And I love David because David is every man and every woman. David is us. But if we'll be quick to repent, oh, there's mercy. Oh, there's grace, right? It's there in spades. And can you imagine, would the story have been different if they just owned it right there and said, I have sinned against heaven and earth? Oh, God. Oh, God. I have to believe. I don't know if it would have fixed everything. I don't know if the fall was done. And once it was done, we don't know. We can only speculate. But I have to believe something different would have emerged out of this than what we get. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Notice the two different responses to humanity's sin. Humanity covered up and hid from God. God sought and pursued humanity. And he's been doing it ever since. And remember, law of first things. We're seeing first things. We're seeing precedent being set throughout the scripture that we're going to see patterns throughout the entire Bible. And you'll see these repeated over and over. You'll see cycles of this over and over and over. And then when we get into the New Testament, the New Covenant, Jesus shows up and breaks the cycle. The deliverer, the Messiah, he shows up and he breaks the cycle. So moving through, lesson number two, the results of sin. So the act of disobeying God is called sin. I, this is going to sound elemental, but not everybody knows this. So I want to be clear on this. One definition of sin is simply this. It means to miss the mark. To literally miss the mark, as when you fail to hit the target in a sporting event. Sin is sometimes described as a trespass, which is something that involves crossing forbidden lines. I'm telling you, I grew up in West Texas. If there was a sign that said no trespassing, you better darn believe it. Because they don't call 911 there either. Those farmers are their own policemen, I'm just saying. And they're packing heat. And I learned that the hard way, me and a bunch of boys one night. When we crossed a forbidden line and then we met Farmer Joe or whatever his name was with a double barrel shotgun in a spotlight. And uh, scared, scared us boys. So it says this, that involves crossing forbidden lines or boundaries that God sets up for our protection. God doesn't set up rules, laws, boundaries just because he wants us to not have fun anymore. He's like, I am saving your life. Don't touch that tree. There will be horrible re you know, repercussions, but you know, we just, no, that one tree, I got to touch it now. Sin is sometimes described as a trespass. The concept of iniquity, this is another word that you'll see throughout the scripture, speaks of sin's most troubling and destructive result, and that is to twist and pervert our inner nature. 
It's to set our inner nature on a course. It's to get us off the rail. You've seen the old illustration that if you take two apparent parallel lines and one of them is one degree off, that in the beginning they'll look like they're running on the same path, but over time, then the further out you get from the origin, they'll actually become miles apart, even if it's one degree off. It just takes a little bit longer. But what happens is the enemy comes in, he contaminates and perverts truth with lies and manipulation and control, just like he did in the garden. He does that in us. It comes through self-speak. It comes through the things we see in the mirror. It comes through us, how we interpret events in our lives. And then all of a sudden, instead of running on a parallel track with truth, with what God says about us, what the Bible says about us, that we're holy, blameless, and above reproach, that we're blessed coming in and blessed going out, blessed in the city, blessed in the field, that we're God's beloved, his sons and daughters. That's what the Bible says about us. That's how God sees us. Colossians 1.22, I quote it, but you got to see it's in the scripture. He, he calls us holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. In his sight. That's how he sees us. And yet, the enemy comes in and contaminates that, and so one, two, three degrees off, and for a while, you feel like you're walking this out, and then you look up one day, and you don't even know where you are anymore. Does this make sense? I was, we were swimming. We used to live in Southern California. We go to the beach every Friday. That was our day off, and we'd go down to Newport Beach or Corona Del Mar or Balboa, that area, and we'd get out in the water and splash around, and if you didn't understand ripped currents or, or riptides, uh, or undercurrents, or undertoes, what you didn't realize is that you'd be bounced along playing, and if you didn't have a point of reference on the beach, you would look up in 15 minutes and not know where you were. What you didn't know is you were bouncing down the beach at a pretty good pace, because you're just, the water's just carrying you. You don't even know it. Has this ever happened to anybody besides me, the West Texas boy in the beach? Okay. You look up, and you're like, where am I? I don't even recognize this beach. That happened to me one day. Then I had to figure out, which way was I going? You lose all point of reference. And that's what the enemy does. He gets us in a place where we don't even realize it, like the frog in the kettle that doesn't realize they're actually being boiled alive because the heat's just gradually coming up. And we find ourselves bouncing along and don't even realize how far away we've moved from truth, how far away we've moved from righteousness. Does that make sense? Number five, if you're looking at lesson two, the results of sin, number five, what impact has sin had on the human heart? What impact? Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? You say, well, they have a good heart. Actually, they don't. <laughs> Sorry, it's been contaminated. It's not their fault. It's called the fall. It's called sin. We were born into this thing. But the good news is there's a remedy, okay? So before we get depressed about it, here's the answer. Only God truly knows the human heart. And only God by his spirit can transform the heart of a person. That's why I say to you, as we've gone through discipleship and teaching over the last two, three years, I say we cannot argue anyone into heaven. We can't argue anyone into being born again. We can't, and, and I love apologetics. I understand you need to know what you believe. You need to understand. You need to understand other worldviews, other religious views. That's good. All that's good. But to believe that you can be, have so much knowledge and wisdom and intellect that you can argue another person into, into belief, that's, that's naive. 
Only God who knows the human heart and the only one who does can actually transform the human heart. It's by the Spirit of God. That's why when you're sharing your faith, instead of relying on your incredible intellect, you should be relying on the Holy Spirit to give you exactly what to say in that hour, as the Scripture says He will. He'll give you what to say in that hour. And so you'll know what to say. And the beauty of it is He'll empower your words and you'll find yourself saying things that you didn't even realize was making an impact. Jerry? That's right. That's right. As we're learning to be witnesses and answer the questions, that's what this is about. This is that. Thank you, Jerry. So what impact has it had? The heart is deceitful. Only God can transform the heart of a person. I used to, that actually gives me massive relief. And that means I'm not the Messiah. That means I don't have to have it all figured out. That means I don't have to have it all together. Remember, no perfect people allowed on that wall. It's invisible, but it's there. That's massive relief for me. Because as a young, well-meaning Southern Baptist boy, I was like, I've got to win them to Jesus. My role, I've got to give them a track. I've got to get something in their hands. I've got to lead them through the Roman road. I've got to give them the four spiritual laws. I have to lead them through evangelism explosion and continuing witness training. I learned all that stuff. Young as a follower of Jesus, passionate, on fire. And yet I kept running into brick wall after brick wall and people rejected me and slamming doors. I'm like, gosh, why are those people so rude? Well, I was the rude one. I was all up in their business. And God may or may not have been involved in that because I was just so adamant to obey my, my leaders and get out there and share my faith that I wasn't walking in wisdom. I was walking in enthusiasm and pretension and zealousness. And not that that's all bad, but I, sometimes I wonder if I didn't do as much damage as I did good sometimes. Well-meaning, but not wisdom. Does that make sense? Lesson number two, the results of sin. If you're looking at your book there, number six, what are the wages of sin? Ooh, Romans 6.23 for the wages, what we earn, that's what wages are. It's something we earn, what we, what we deserve because we've done something. For the wages of sin is what? Eh, it's death. But the gift of God, look at this. He just flips the coin right here. I love the way, I love the way he flips the script here. Paul says, look, the wages of sin is death, all right? No question about it. That's what the whole old covenant's about. But here's the good news. The gift of God, he flips it. But he says, but look on this side. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's good news on the back side of this tragedy that happened in the garden. And that's where we're going with this thing. In Romans 7, Paul describes his own state and he cries out on behalf of all humanity with the most important question ever asked. Here's the question, verse 24, Romans 7. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Remember, Paul was going back and forth, back and forth. I want to do this, but I end up doing this. I want to do this, but I find that I'm over here. What is going on? He says, finally, he just gets frustrated. He says, wretched man that I am. <laughs> Who will rescue me from this body? Humanity's deepest need is for salvation. I want everyone to listen to this. Because I don't want to, in a room with this many people, assume that everybody in this room, just because you show up, it's like if I go to McDonald's, it doesn't make me a Big Mac. Amen? If I pull into my garage, it doesn't make me a car. 
If you go to church, it doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Okay? And I mean that with the most, utmost love. But there are many people sitting in our church every Sunday, probably here too, that have never actually stepped over the line to actually embrace the free gift of eternal life that's in Jesus Christ. And some of you are wondering why you never make any headway, you get no traction, and you love God from a distance, but you don't worship, you can't hardly read the scripture because it's just like mystery, and you wonder why there's no movement, there's no life in this, but, but you're a good person and you mean well and you've got good habits and you're disciplined and you, you do it and you do it and you do it, but there's no life in it. It may be because you've never actually stepped over the line to go all in and be born again. The Bible calls that being born of the Spirit. There's something, there's a heart connection that happens with God. The Bible calls it reconciliation. We're reconciled to Him. That means we're made right with Him. And so, I, what I do in counseling a lot, and through the years I've done this, I'll sit down with somebody, and they may have been in our church. I remember one young lady sat down in my office, and, and she, her family was in our church. Her dad was an elder in my church, and I'd known her at that time, probably seven, eight years. She was going through a crisis, and I sat down with her, and as we're sitting in my office, I just look at her, and I say, you know what? I don't want to assume anything. I said, Jessica, have you ever really given your heart to Jesus, stepped over the line and gone all in with him? And she just burst into tears. She goes, no. I'm like, I mean, it sort of caught me off guard, to be honest, because I was like, her family's amazing. Your parents are awesome. Uh, serving God, loving God. She's serving our children's ministry. And she had never given her heart to Christ. We just all assumed, because she's in church and been in church all her life. We just assumed that it was good. Guess what? That gave me a different starting place in my counseling session that day. We had to back up a little bit and go, you know what? We need to take care of first things. And I said, so let me ask you a question, Jessica. Thank you, first of all, thank you for being honest about that. And by the way, when we do our Life with Oak Hills class, we'll have six to 10 to 15 people in that class. We go around the circle, introduce ourselves, and I look at them and in love, I say, I never assume anything. Why? Because of Jessica. I never assume anything. We all come here from different faith traditions. Oak Hills has a broad canopy. That means we come from a lot of different streams theologically. And there's some things we just need to get on the same page about. One of them is this. There is no other name given among men by which they must be saved but Jesus Christ. And we need, to, we need to start there. That's our starting point. That puts us on the same page. And so I never assume. So almost every time, not every time, but almost every time that we do Life with Oak Hills, somebody in that class gets born again. And it could be a 65-year-old, a 70-year-old, a 35-year-old. There's always seems like somebody in there says, I've never actually stepped over the line. I've never gone all in. I love God. I'm a God-fearer, but I've never, I don't have a relationship with him. And so it's beautiful. So I never want to assume that because here's the thing. Humanity's deepest need is for salvation, not just from the evil in the world, but also from the evil in our own hearts. The Bible's clear. Our hearts are evil inherently because of the fall. And so that means we have got to step in because we need a Savior. I'm looking at you, every one of you, I love you, but I'm telling you, you need a savior. Because we'll ask the golden question, what's the golden question, family? How's that working for you? If it's not working for you, there's a reason it's not working for you. It, you may not have it to work for you. So you need to go all in, take that step. Maybe tonight we'll just pray that prayer before we get out of here. So we're almost done. 
Lesson three, God's solution. Here it is. Here's the solution for that. Jesus. Jesus. It sounds simplistic, but it's not. It's, it's earth-shattering. Romans 7, Paul, again, he describes his own deepest need. Now listen to this. God's ultimate solutions, next slide. God's ultimate solution for sin was foreshadowed in the original story in the Garden of Eden. In other words, we had the fall, but now we have the solution. So look what happens. After Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to hide themselves with their own covering. I'm going to cover myself. I've got this. We don't, in fact, they're hiding from God. We got this. And this is how we treat God. I'm good. I got this. Do we really? How's that working out for you? Remember, that's our golden question. How's that really working out? Look at this. After Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to hide themselves with their own covering. And humanity has been trying to hide from God ever since. God, however, provided the real covering. Now, he did this in a strange way. He slaughtered an innocent animal. He shed blood, and he took the skin of an innocent animal and used that to cover the nakedness of the man and the woman. Now, that all sounds barbaric from our perspective here in, in civilized West, you know, Central Texas, the hill country, but you have to understand he was setting a precedent for what had to happen. Blood had to be spilled. Innocent blood had to be spilled in order to cover the guilty. And he did it by the blood of an innocent animal. He provided the covering, foreshadowing what was to come in his own son, Jesus. Number nine, if you're looking at lesson three, what does Jesus' blood, his sacrificial death do for us? Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, that's shouting ground right there. That's the stuff that makes me want to stand up in a church service and say, you better preach. You better stay on that. That while I was a sinner, Jesus died for me. And you know what's awesome about that? I, I've lost count of how many years ago. I'm terrible with numbers. Everybody knows that. But here's the deal. It was a long time ago. I was 19 years of age. I'm 57 now. Somebody do the math and help me. But it was a long time ago. But here's the deal. It's just as fresh for me today as it was then. I get... The reason I sit right where Steve's sitting right there on Sunday mornings and I raise my hands and I clap and sometimes I shout and I get excited is because it's just as fresh to me today as it was when I was 19 years of age. Because I know what God saved me from. Do you know what God saved you from? And if you do, you better be shouting because I'm telling you, I was heading down the wrong road and God interrupted my life. I'm so grateful. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for me. He died for you. Since we have now been justified by his blood. The word justified means justified never sinned. Justified never sinned. Is that not amazing? He wipes it away. As far as the east is from the west, he, is, that's how far he wipes our transgressions and our iniquities away. As though they were never happened. Jesus died once for all. That means he died for your past sins. We all get that. But he died for your today sins. We're not as quick to amen on that one. And he died for the ones you haven't even committed yet. I don't know about you. That's called good news. That's gospel. Is it fair? No, but it's the kingdom. God never said anything about the kingdom being fair. He just said it's just. Just as if I'd never sinned. Is that not amazing? That's good news. That's great news. 
verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So now we're justified. Now we're saved from any wrath, anything that was due us, anything that, remember the wages of sin was what? Death. We've been saved from that. We're justified that. But then he even one-ups himself. I love the way God biggie-sizes himself sometimes. Look at verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Check this out. How much more? How much more? Having been reconciled, there's that word again, reconnected, made right, shall we be saved through his life? So it's not just about his death. Jesus died on the cross, right? He, he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. He did it in our place. Three days later, he was raised from the dead, proving he was the son of God. Now, anyone who believes in him would have life and never perish. That's the gospel. And so he did this, and because we enter into it and we accept that, we are saved not only through his death on the cross. I'm thankful for the cross, but I'm more thankful for the resurrection and the empty tomb. Because I now live my life not looking toward the cross. I don't know if you know this about some churches, but for some people, it's all about the cross. Wait a minute. That's good, because, but the cross was the vehicle that got us to the resurrection. We live life from the resurrection. We live on this side of that thing. I'm not looking toward the cross. I'm looking away from it, and I'm moving out of the resurrection into life. Does that make sense? So I, it would be awkward to put a, an empty cave around your neck on a necklace. It probably wouldn't make for good jewelry. But, I mean, really, that's what we should be wearing around instead of crosses. Amen? No knock on your crosses. They're beautiful. But I'm just saying, the, the real value is the resurrection, not just the death. It's the life. It's the life. That's why I say we need to leak life. We need to speak life. We need to breathe life. We need to convey life onto others. We need to share it, bless it forward. We need to constantly be speaking life over one another, encouraging, exhorting, edifying, building one another up. We should be life leakers. Christians should be the ones that are running around, and they're the ones that are lighting up rooms with words of life. Why? Because we live life out of the resurrection, not just off the cross. The cross was a terrible thing. When we were in, um, in France, we visited the Louvre, which is a massive museum, art museum. And all of the, the religious art that was in there was dark. It was so dark. I started taking pictures at first. I was like, oh, this is amazing. After about three or four shots of Jesus in agony, I was like, wait a minute. That's not my Jesus. They're capturing a moment. But where's the pictures of the resurrection? Where's the artwork that shows him blowing out the roof out of a cave or shows him ascending into heaven? Where's the art that shows the life? It was all depicting the death. We go to the Notre Dame, which is a massive cathedral in France, and, and it's beautiful and it's like awe-inspiring. But then again, you see all the art and all the art is dark. And it all has to do with death, 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 death. I'm like, wow, I think I have a very different perspective on Jesus than a lot of historical Christians. Because for me, when I got saved, it wasn't death, it was life. And to this day, it's life. So let's land the plane with this. Lesson three, 
God's solution is Jesus. What makes God's gift of grace so costly is that Jesus paid for it with his life. What makes it so powerful is that he came back from the dead. That's what I'm trying to say. Proving that he is the son of God and showing that God accepted his sacrifice as payment for our sin. His resurrection is the proof. His death was the vehicle that got him there, but it's his resurrection that's the tangible proof that God accepted the sacrifice. As, for, as a result for receiving, and this is out of lesson four, as a result of receiving God's sacrifice through Jesus Christ as the payment for our sins, we not only experience forgiveness from the past, but are also given a new heart and a new life as God's children. That's the bonus. Not only are we saved from the past, but we get a new heart and a new life to live this thing and to do what most Christians don't even use this word in their vocabulary. We're actually called to enjoy this life. It's a gift. All good things come from the Father of lights down from above. They come from Him. All that's good. And we actually have the privilege of enjoying this life enjoying. You know the word enthusiasm is the word in theos. It's in God. It literally is, is the root of it means in God. Enthusiasm. If you're passionate, enthusiastic about your faith, that's because you're in God. You're in Him. New life and new heart. All right, a couple more slides. Number two, lesson four, number two, what does God do when he rescues us from our state of spiritual death? Ephesians 2, man, this is shouting ground scripture right here. But because of his great love for us, and you need to put you in there, because of his great love for me, you could say you, because of his great love for me, God, who is rich in mercy, made me alive with Christ even when I was dead in transgressions. It is by grace I have been saved. And God raised me up with Christ and seated me with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We've been raised up. You know where you live right now? We're so prone to be in the now and live in this natural world, but actually we're seated in Christ in heavenly places right now. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around that. For one, we're not Hebrews. <laughs> we're, not, we, we're not Eastern thinkers. We're Western thinkers. So it's hard to wrap our mind around the possibility that we can be in two places at one time. But for an Eastern thinker, they have no issue with that. They're like, oh yeah, yeah. But for us, it's a little bit harder because we, we dissect everything. But we're seated in Christ right now. That is my position in Christ. And whenever the devil wants to come along and start to tell me lies about myself or try to call up my past or mistakes I've made, I just have to say, oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry. I can't hear you. I'm seated in Christ. I'm too far up. I've different altitude right here. I can't. I'm sorry. A little hard of hearing here because you're so far down there and I'm seated in Christ. I'm with him. I am with him in heavenly places. Where's Jesus seated? Ephesians 1 says at the right hand of the Father. And where does that put him? Far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. So if Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and we're seated together in Christ, guess where we are? Far above all principality, power, might, and dominion. You know what that's called in the Bible? Authority. We have been given authority, conferred authority upon us Problem is, we don't know it. We're like Barney Fife. We got our gun, but our bullet's in our pocket. 
That's how most Christians run around. We're kept, we got a gun. We look good, but we have no firepower because our bullet's in our pocket. Our one bullet. But when you know who you are, man, you're packing heat. You've got authority. Amen? That's who we are. That's who you are. If you've been born again, you're seated in Christ in heavenly places. Now. Not someday. Not when we cross over to Beulah land. Right now. Right here. You're already there positionally. That ought to put a little pep in your step. Number six, lesson four, what does Paul say about those who are in Christ? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Some of you, this may be your favorite verse on the planet. It's one of mine. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God who made us right, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Two more slides. Lesson four, receiving God's gift. We have learned that we are spiritually dead and cannot save ourselves. This is what we're here about tonight. We cannot save ourselves. We're spiritually dead. Regardless of who we are, we need a Savior. By receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord, we can be delivered from the power of sin and its consequences. Our salvation is based on what Jesus did for us, not on our own efforts, behavior, or good works. Oh, that's the gospel. That's good news. So the last thing, here's two things. We must therefore realize that we are sinners without excuse, that's Romans 1.20, and that it is only through the death and resurrection of Jesus that we can be saved. I cannot save myself. For me to save myself is like Adam running around with a fig leaf. It's not happening. It's not working. Respond. So the first thing is realize it. The second thing is respond by turning from sin. That's called repentance. When you turn, that's what repentance is. To literally turn. From sin, putting our faith in Christ, in him, and then following him as Lord. We don't want Jesus just as Savior. He cannot be Savior and not be Lord. And he can't be Lord and not be Savior. You don't get one without the other. And so we accept him as our Savior. I give you everything. You died for me. I receive and accept that. But Lord, I'm declaring your Lordship over my life. So let's pray tonight as we close. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book that is helping us relay foundations. Some of us are redigging old wells, in a sense, that have gotten dirt and been covered by storms and debris, and we're sort of pulling things away, pulling debris away and uncovering the wells and letting them flow with living water once again. So, Lord, as we continue to relay these foundations, Father, Give us grace to grow. Give us grace to prepare ourselves to lead others through this. And Lord, I pray for any of my friends here tonight that have yet to go all in, that have yet to step over the line, and that maybe tonight they're realizing, I haven't actually made that move toward God to make Jesus my Savior and my Lord. And so... I just will, I'll, we'll do this the old-fashioned way. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here tonight and you've never done that, and you're realizing it and recognizing it, there's no shame in that. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm the only one looking. If that's you tonight and, and you would be honest enough to say, yeah, that's me, 
Would you, would you raise your hand so I could see it? Anybody here would say, I've never really stepped over the line, but I need to. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Thank you. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to close in just a minute. I'm going to end the prayer. And if that's you, come see me here up at the stage. I'll just be waiting here. And uh, we won't make any fanfare here. It's just you and me. You come up here. Be glad to, to pray with you. And let's take that step together and we'll walk with you. And uh, by the way, Easter's coming. It's a great time to be baptized and take that next step. So Father, I thank you for these that raised their hands here tonight. Thank you for their honesty, their transparency. And I ask, Lord, that you would continue to woo and draw them by your spirit not by clever words, but by your spirit. And we trust you in that, Lord. We honor you. And Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word, the word of life. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.